Welcome to the Voices of War, a podcast with a simple vision, to bring to life the true costs of war through the voices of those who've lived it. I'm your host, Maz, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Today, I'm speaking with Eshan. He came to Australia in December 2013 as a refugee from Afghanistan. He worked as an interpreter for Australian forces from 2009 to 2013 and was ultimately resettled here with his family due to an increasing threat to his life. He joins me today to discuss the reality faced by many of those who have worked with Australians and other coalition forces over the past 20 years. Eshan is someone who has personally experienced what many are going through today in Afghanistan. During our chat, I will use only his first name and will not talk about where he's from directly, as he still has family on the ground whose safety remains uncertain. Eshan, thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me. Uh, Now, just before we delve into your experiences getting out of Afghanistan, maybe we can start uh, with a little bit of background about you and the work you've done. Uh, What kind of work did you do uh, with the Aussies uh, on the ground? Um, so as a, as an interpreter, I started working with Aussies in, uh, 2009 in Uruzgan province, mm-hmm. uh, in TK. And, uh, our, our job was mostly focused on, uh, having training of, uh, Afghan national army and, uh, attend meetings on a daily basis about the security of the area, about the yeah, cooperation from the book from uh, to the Afghan army and uh, and uh, yeah to provide any you know planning help or any yeah any sort of help which which basically Australian uh, mentors would say were providing to Afghan army hmm. and we were uh, we were the sort of middle person to translate these whole things hmm. and and I guess one of the things that perhaps many Australians and also others across the West who haven't uh, been to Afghanistan and uh, who haven't worked with uh, interpreters, they may not realize how essential the work was. Can you just talk about that a little bit? Because I think that will give some context uh, and, and why your role in particular was so important. Well, look, it's um, as an interpreter, when you um, like compare, you know, interpreting or translating in Australia right now and compare it to when you are on the sort of a battleground in Afghanistan, it's completely different because uh, first it's a cultural differences. And uh, secondly, you are translating in a way that it should be, you know, some words you have to use it the way that doesn't sound inappropriate or disrespectful. Mm. So mostly beside even the, without like with the translation, you would also think both sides of the, Using the proper cultural advising too to the mentors and even to the to the Afghan side too, like you know that you know something we knew about the Aussies and something uh, as an interpreter and something uh, I like as an Afghan knew about my culture. I would you know say to the Australians officers that or soldiers that you know that we we can approach. And next time we can approach in, a, in this way, that will be more polite or these sort of things, yeah. Mm. And I think that's an important point because one of the things that we're learning, particularly now as the uh, uh, situation has rapidly changed and ultimately, you know, the coalition has 
quote unquote, uh, uh, or, or, or the war uh, supporting the Afghan national government uh, with the coalition uh, has been lost to the Taliban because they now have uh, ultimately uh, full control. That's something that's uh, that's really important because many are now saying and many analysts are making the conclusions and and I think. Uh, uh, through my own experiences, I, I tend to agree, is that we didn't always understand the cultural context. We didn't always understand who the key players were uh, or how Afghanistan yeah. functions uh, as, as, a, as, as a country or, 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 or even the tribal affiliations, the cultural connotations. Uh, we just didn't really understand that. What was your experience in, and, and how, how did you help uh, the Aussies that you worked with understand those cultural nuances and, and how receptive were we generally to your knowledge? Look, it's, um, you know, as, a, as I mentioned before, as an interpreter, it's, it's, a, it's an important job. You sort of a connection of these, the, the uh, you know, Afghan and Australian uh, culture and people out there and, you know, the one who are there to help and the one who need help. You have to give right message. You know, you have to say that in in a right way. So it's it, it was very important as an interpreter that you know you sort of give proper awareness to both sides and always uh, as an Australian soldier, whoever were you know all the soldiers during this whole like you know, my employment time I've worked with is basically the target was very clear to help Afghan army to help you know uh, to a level that they can they can uh, have the better security for Af Afghanistan. They can have that, you know, stability to Afghan people. So their role as, an, uh, as a sol soldier was very clear that, you know, we, have, we are here to help Afghan, uh, Afghan people and Afghan soldiers to, you know, to keep the country stable. But uh, in the current situation, as I see right now, what happened to Afghanistan, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a bit different right now. It's, you know, hmm. all the sacrifices, all the, all the hard work we did, all the intentions we had, it sort of went opposite. Hmm. Hmm. And, and while you were on the ground, now just to, to make clear, you, you, you were not a trained soldier. You were never a trained soldier. Uh, you were quite young at the time as well. What were the risks that you faced uh, when you were on the ground? Because you were, like I said, you, you were not armed. Uh, and again, this might yeah. be obvious for some in my audience, but uh, perhaps not everybody. Uh, you were unarmed uh, and you, were, you spent your days with the Australian soldiers. Uh, what did that mean to your security? Look, it was always a threat from the first day when you join as an interpreter. And uh, when you sort of from the first step of coming to a like most of the, those interpreting or uh, jobs and companies were towards south southern part of Afghanistan. In the northern part, it was at that time when I was working, it was very like compared to south southern uh, Afghanistan, it was a bit stable. So mm -hmm. there wasn't much of a job opportunities. So person like me who come from a northern uh, part of Afghanistan had to travel about 13 hours in a car with a full risk on, like on the way. If they, you know, if the Taliban catch me, 
if they ask me where I'm going, you know, because uh, still in Afghanistan, the cloth-wise or the culture-wise or the, you know, the language accents a bit different from South and North. Mm-hmm. So they sort of get the idea from the from talking to you that, you know, you're not from that area. Mm-hmm. So it was always a risk involved. Okay, well, what if they catch me? What will happen? But I mean, the message was pretty clear. If they would have caught any of an interpreter, uh, like during their initial phase of, you know, joining a, as an interpreter, and then uh, that would have been clear, they, you know, they could, yeah, they were just, they were, yeah, killing straight away. Like, you know, yeah, yeah, you are the, proper infidel you you joining infidels that was their clear message at that time but mm. uh, still i mean some audience would be thinking okay well, if you knew the, you know that risk was that the risk was that high why would you join it's mm. it was the message well i mean the thing is it was very clear at that time that i can't do anything else or in a better way to to serve afghanistan or to help my country build in uh in other profession rather than like you know in uh, being an interpreter like yeah i could join afghan army but it was again my knowledge and my ability at that point was like i want to do a bit better mm-hmm. so i feel like interpreting would have been a better chance to you know to help build afghanistan in a better way to make afghanistan in a, in a better way so that was the the, the, the whole point so yeah, so then you know, as I said, that you know that was the first step of you know of being an interpreter. That you know you you accept those all risks, and then once you become an interpreter, that's another risk. Like when you are sort of in the battlefield with the because uh, Australian soldiers and Afghan interpreters, it's like uh, I know we were not trained. I know we were not like proper soldiers, but we were like. The one in one room, all the soldiers were sleeping. In other room, we like interpreters were sleeping in the mm. same base. In the most of my employment was in a in a for, in a in a like forward on the, those operation bases or patrol bases, which are like kind of a frontline areas. The mm-hmm. majority of my employment was in those sort of areas. So once I was leaving, uh, once I was leaving, like you know, I was spending most of like five to six months. In, of my employment in uh, in in Uruzgan, and then when I was going back to home, I had to fly from Uruzgan to Kabul because uh, road uh, by road it was very risky to to travel by car from Uruzgan to Kandahar, then from Kandahar to Kabul, which was about nine hours of going in the car, you know, facing all the south south mm. the southern part of Afghanistan, you know, Taliban risk. So that's why the easiest way was like to sort of split the risk of, uh, you know, fly, Com- driving. Compromise. Or, yeah. yeah, 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 kind of compromise. And then then still I had to go again six hours of driving in a, in a cab or in a, in a, mm. in a, in a, in a, in a passenger car where you have three, four strangers sitting with you. Still as a passenger, when you're traveling with someone like for six hours, Mm. Obviously, someone would ask you, you know, like not even if personal, still, mm. you know, on a general talk, you know, someone asks you, what is your profession? Mm. What do you do for work? Mm. You know, and even in that part, you have to make a story that, you know, they don't know that we're because you can't trust anyone at that point. That what if someone is a spy of a Taliban? What if they catch you? What if they, te- you know, chase you or whatever they see 
see where I live. And yeah, you, you, you don't only think about yourself. You think about your family, your relatives, your whole, like, you know, area that the whole, you know, relatives you have in that mm. place that, yeah, it's, uh, it was, uh, it was a bit risky. Yeah. And, and again, just for the audience who doesn't have experience with this, what happens to those who were, and even now who are caught, uh, by the Taliban who worked you know, people like yourself who were interpreters and what happened yeah. to their families? Look, I have, um, there were a few incidents happened that, you know, I, I remember when I was coming to in 2013, because I, we were, we were like the second or third families of those Afghan interpreters who came to Australia. After us, they were like, um, hundreds of them came in, like they were coming in a month's time every year, every Second month, you were seeing, you know, there were interpreters coming mm-hmm. to Afghan- from Australia, from Afghanistan to Australia. But during that process, I remember one of our colleagues, uh, he had a visa even ready, I think. And uh, like we was waiting for his, you know, a call that, you know, when, sh- when you should come and when you should, you know, come for the flight. He got killed at, at his own, like it, at his house, like, even before coming to Australia. Like, yeah. His family was yeah left without any support or anything yeah so he he lost his life because somehow Taliban realized he was working as an interpreter. Mm. So, and, and you said still, those the people yeah so I mean sorry to interrupt yeah those people the one yeah the one who are currently waiting in the in Afghanistan uh, like I have a of a Facebook a WhatsApp group of all those interpreters on a daily basis. How you know, desperately they go to the airport. They have those uh, those documents, those you know, those you know appreciation letters that which says that has how good they have served Australian Army and how good they have done their job. But still waiting days and days because currently the way Taliban is saying that oh we're not touching anyone, we we won't be saying anything to anyone, even if that is an interpreter or Afghan soldier or anything like that. But still, it's not a their trusty word we trust, actually. We have seen their betrayal a few times before. And that's why everyone is in a rush of, especially those interpreters that, who are in the in a Kabul airport or who are waiting for their approval letter, I would say, or a visa information or a flight information a few different categories right now in a pending situation. Hmm. Uh, and I guess we have heard reports even uh, as, as, as even just earlier this afternoon of uh, the Taliban not keeping their word of the amnesty for anybody who worked for foreigners uh, or NSF. Yeah. Um, and and of, of particular note, I think, has been around Kandahar. What have you heard uh, that's happening on the ground at the moment? Look, uh, Kandahar has been a battleground for from from the start from this last twenty years of this whole war. Kandahar has been a battleground for you know for international for NATO or ISAF and versus Taliban. It's it's uh, it's basically a it's it's you know the, the interpreters were always the main target for them. It was you know the numerous uh, killings happened. Of those interpreters, if even when I was there, actually we were hearing that a sniper Taliban killed an Afghan interpreter during patrol 
in the area or, you know, one of the interpreter was leaving or the base, he got shot. One of the interpreter was, yeah, was, uh, was kind of, you know, was going home. He got kidnapped or, you know, yeah, killed or beheaded. Yeah. These sort of things. And, you know, think that way, how, how full of revenge they are for uh, interpreters. You would, will you think that will be forgiven just like that? Hmm. It's yeah. it's hard to say. It's hard to say that you know they will they will you know, spare them those interpreters. So. I mean, I think you made an interesting point before. You know, that how they are perceived is ultimately worse than the infidels, worse than the foreigners, because they have, yeah. in the eyes of the Taliban, they have betrayed their own people and sold themselves out to the uh, to the infidels. Uh, and I guess that's a very difficult thing to, uh, as you say, uh, forgive, yeah, yeah. regardless of what um, what amnesty promises have been made. But that's on a that's on a on a higher level. And we also know that Taliban is not really one cohesive body. There are multiple different factions uh, who don't all necessarily listen to the same leaders. So it's one thing to say at the leadership at the top uh, to you know that amnesty will be afforded, but on the ground, that doesn't necessarily translate uh, to that amnesty actually being afforded. Uh, do, are you aware, and, and again, we're hearing uh, reports, and this may be something you're not aware of, but uh, we're, you know, I read it time and time again, uh, Taliban intelligence is, you know, looking for uh, interpreters. H- how do they actually do this? What does that actually mean? Look, it's, uh, I, rem- I remember, um they were like uh, when uh, when we were working as an interpreter. There were a few things we were being extra careful with. Uh, it, it's it, it may sound funny or it may sound a bit weird actually, but it it, it is it was true actually. Uh, when we were leaving, uh, w- when we were re- thinking of going on leave as an interpreter, 15, 20 days before, or, you know, thirty days, like a month before. Usually, when you were working in the in the in the bases, like as an interpreter, you're wearing a T-shirt, just like a you know half sleeve T-shirt, or you know mm-hmm. just yeah, or you know something that you know um, you know V-neck T-shirt. Usually, uh, we were like wearing proper full sleeve shirts on. That if, what if Taliban catch us? Usually, what they were doing, they were some sometime they were telling the the people to take off your shirts if mm-hmm. your shirt. If your hands were like, you know, you, you wear your T-shirt, your mm. hands are half like, you know, change the skin color. They're, like, they're a little bit more tanned. Know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. The little bit of tan. Yeah. So they were checking the, those, that tanning of the, of the skin color. If your tanning, you know, skin color was sort of a tan, you know, to, you know in your arms or, you know, just around the, you know, around the shoulder side, mm-hmm. they were thinking they are the interpreters and they were, that was enough for them to kill into, you know, uh, uh, or to kill or, you know, just, you know, realize that this is an interpreter. That was a one clue. And the other one was basically the sometime, as I said before, that, you know, those uh, cab or cab drivers or those uh, the people who work nearby uh, those bases the, at that time, actually, yeah, the near uh, patrol bases or all the big you know, airports or the, like, I would say, I want to mention the names, but yeah, I would, mm-hmm. they say that like, mm-hmm. the, like a cafe, the Kandahar base or like mm-hmm. a Kabul base. Mm-hmm. 
mm-hmm. or like uh, any other uh, promise. Any of the main know, points, uh, main concentration uh, main areas. Point, so mm-hmm. yeah, main point. Yeah, yeah, true. Yeah, yeah. So there, there were some cab drivers who were specifically working as an intelligence for, for, uh, uh, for Taliban. Mm-hmm. So I have a friend who was telling me a story that you know once he sit with, uh, came out of uh, uh, from. Kandahar base and he sit in the cab like in the cab and wanted to go to the to the uh, to his province but uh, or to the main center of all the, uh, the the station like a bus stand or mm-hmm. the cab stand so mm-hmm. he can travel to his province so in between that 15 minute trip he realized that you know he started to chatting and calling in the code words that I like I remember I don't remember the exact words but he was saying, like, you know, they were using the code word, like, I have, I don't know, I just, it's a made-up word, it's not the code, mm-hmm. but yeah, like, I have a sheep, I have sheep with me, this and that, mm-hmm. I'm on my way, I'm 10 minutes away, I'll be there, or something like that. Mm-hmm. So we, that interpreter realized, oh, there, there is something happening. So he jumped out of the car, actually, at, in the middle of, before reaching that destination to save himself. Because he realized that that cab driver was going to uh, give him to, or you know, just take him to Taliban. Oh, that's, okay. Right. I mean, that's, okay. yeah. So he, that was, yeah. I mean, basically, yeah. You were, you were being extra careful with every part of it. Yeah, there's, that, there are some there. Wow. Yeah. And it's, uh, and the other important point to mention here, it's not just your, your, you know, how careful you yourself must be. But also your family, yeah. right? Because you, as you, you, we talked offline about this. You know, you're away for extended periods of time, uh, and your family will get asked questions. How did you overcome those challenges? Oh, um, it was uh, it was basically whenever they were um, like whenever I was working uh, or when I was on my job. Actually, usually they were saying that my my son or my brother. Obviously, when you're six, five, six months away from home, people ask questions that, yeah, you have a young, you know, old, older son or you have your a son. Where is he? What do you do? You know, how come he's not a home all the time? I was like, yeah, you have to make a proper uh, unofficial non-government sort of job that, you know, that doesn't have to do anything with the uh, ISAF, NATO or even Afghan uh, officials, actually. So you have to say something. Yeah, he worked for... Uh, like in my story, my parents were always telling you work for one of the construction company in Kabul. He just like we do a lot of the administration work. So just yeah, he does that in Kabul, and it, mostly he's busy there. That's why he yeah he's five six months away from home. He mm. come for only leave leave of you know for ten days or twenty days or a month. Yeah. Mm. So they were always lying about my job. Yeah, of course. And your cover was blown ultimately. Um, can you tell the story of that? Uh, my cover was like uh, as an interpreter as, with Australian. I started in 20, uh, 2009, but uh, even before that, I was an interpreter for Americans in 20, uh, 2006 and then in 2008 with the Netherlands uh, uh, forces in CM Nuruska. And during this whole time, I was, yeah, the same story was used. But in uh, just a few months before, uh, I think it was in 2013, actually, 
just a few months before coming to Australia, uh, one of the Afghan soldiers uh, saw me in Uruzgan in a, a Chora, Chora district, actually, where I was working that operation base was. Mm-hmm. And uh, he saw me, oh, like I was shocked. I, was, I couldn't say anything. Because my whole truth was revealed and, you know, my whole, yeah, he's like, okay, yeah, I was lying. He was lying all the time. I could see his face, you know, you have that, you know, okay, you've been lying to us. And, mm. you know, you work as an administrator in Kabul for a construction company. What are you doing here? Mm. So I couldn't lie to him. I was like, oh, yeah, I'm an interpreter. Please don't tell anyone at home. But mm. of course, you know, he he told his parents and his parents told some relatives, some relatives told some other people, the rumors or the new news mm. went sort of to some bad people too. Mm-hmm. Luckily, I, after a few months, I came to Australia. But mm. after uh, coming to Australia, a few months later, my parents started to receive call that, okay, your son, uh, we know now, your son used to work for us infidels. I mean, for them, they're infidels. They just mentioned infidels. They don't care, Australian, American, or Mm -hmm. any other forces. Yeah, like you, for the international forces, and uh, and, uh, your son had did a sinful job. It's a sin, and we want him back, or you have to come and meet us. Mm. that was the message from them but I my father first didn't take it seriously he's like okay yeah now because my sons are gone maybe some people try to scare us mm. but after after a few weeks uh, you know my brother got chased in a uh, he was he was on his way to home from gym and he got chased by a car and they, they had they would try to, to get him in the car according to my brother like when when pretty much I went out from the gym, just uh, uh, walking for a minute, suddenly I saw a car on the road stopping. And when they opened the door, I saw already they have weapons. And he just he didn't think any interpreting or anything like that. So he, he realized that something's wrong. So mm-hmm. he saw a home next door. He just went inside to a stranger's home to save himself. And uh, because it was in the middle of the city, like where the people crowd and everything, mm. those Taliban or whoever the, the people were, they didn't go inside that stranger home. And luckily that stranger home saved my brother from being mm. kidnapped or killed or, yeah. yeah and and yeah, just, for, that, just yeah. for context, your brother was yeah. also, he also worked as an interpreter, right? Yeah, no, uh, like my brother... Um, uh, that, w- that was my younger brother. So uh, my other brother, yes, uh, me and my younger brother, we both were interpreters. Even my cousin, he was an interpreter in uh, Uruskam uh, right. for Australians. So we were here, actually. Me, my younger brother, we were all here. And mm. that was my uh, another younger brother who, who got chased. From ah, okay, right. So he wasn't actually. Yeah, yeah. Right. So he wasn't actually. Yeah, he wasn't an interpreter. He wasn't. Mm. Uh, he was. He was just a student. Actually, he was going. Was mm. a high high school student. He was. He had nothing to do with. But of course, I would. I can't say he had nothing to do with, with my job because, as I mentioned it uh, mentioned earlier, you know, when you join as an interpreter, you just take your whole family to risk. You you of know course. you just accept that risk. Yeah. 
Yeah, and just for uh, uh, just for a little bit, a little bit of clarity, the ANF, ANF, uh, NSF soldier that uh, was from the same uh, uh, province as you, yeah, he wasn't necessarily a Taliban supporter or anything like that. He merely no, no, couldn't no. keep a secret yeah. as most of us can't keep a secret as most of us can't help but gossip. So uh, it, it wasn't. Yeah. He he wasn't ill intended. He he didn't want you to get caught. He merely just told his parents, who then told someone else, who then told someone else. So yeah. the word got out, right? Just just so so I'm clear on that. That he he wasn't. Yeah, anywhere. no, 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 yeah. no, no. He wasn't a bad uh, person. He wasn't uh, someone like you know. Uh, he was. Uh, I mean, later because after that I had no choice. So he was a good friend. He was uh, because he was working in the same base with us and he you know the his whole thing was because i lied to people around so he kind of had that laugh on me that you know why mm. would you lie something like that mm. because yeah then i told him you know of course i would lie why would i why wouldn't i lie mm. i'm an interpreter you know how interpreters are so mm. he went home you know just a normal like you know a parent son talk must have told his family mm. that yeah you see yeah i went home yeah i, I Urzgan, uh, work in Urzgan as an interpreter, and uh, yeah, his parents. Oh, okay, yeah, must have told other family members or relatives as a yeah, general talk, and that general talk sort of become yeah, general that knowledge. news sort of yeah. went to the yeah, general knowledge and went to the bad people. That's yeah. how it went actually. And of course, he, he was also at risk anyway himself being a, a member of the army. So I suspect for him. Oh yeah, no, was risky. Yeah, as well. no, he yeah. I mean, he would he would use the same path as me actually, like when going home, mm. like as an Af- Afghan soldier. Even like from the, luckily as an interpreter, you get a chance to have a flight from, you know, from mm. where I was working. Mm-hmm. But he, yeah, he was also in a like you know in a more risk because he would have he had to uh, uh, go in the you know those you know that thirteen fourteen hours of you know passenger cars actually or you know the, those commercial cab cab driving cars you know mm-hmm, to mm-hmm. go home he had to he had oh he also had to you know make some stories wear some proper clothes com- uh, according to the area where he is yeah so yeah yeah now so just to uh, uh come back to the point of your departure from afghanistan because you're you have uh, received some credible threats to your uh, safety, which uh, prompted you to then apply to come to Australia. Is that is that right? Yes, yes. So, can you tell us a little bit about uh, that? How how did you how did that uh, what happened? What was the risk that you faced in your family and and you know what that, that journey of coming to Australia? Well, now it's uh, it started in uh, 2013. Actually, was because the, the news of Australian withdrawing from Afghanistan came, I think, uh, if I remember properly, it was in 2012 or a year before that. And we were in a request to Australian defense that, you know, the risk we are going through every day, we really need help. You know, we can't stay here anymore. And our families are also in a risk. So we, we, we have to leave, you know, you guys have to do something that we we can't stay in Afghanistan right now. And after, you know, talking to her, there were like some VIP generals were coming all the time. You know, some politicians were coming 
and in consistent, you know, efforts and trying. We after you know such you know hard uh, requests. We I think there was uh, if I remember the politician name was it Julian Gillard that was uh, yeah, at yeah. that time. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, then, then, you know, we received the good news that, you know, Australia is happy to accept those interpreters, uh, those uh, Afghans who worked as an interpreter, but only with immediate family. Mm-hmm. And uh, the rest of the family were left behind. And uh, mm. I, um, yeah, and that's how it happened. And since you left back in 2013, and I think, again, we spoke offline, but you talked about your parents, uh, they ultimately, because of the threats they started receiving after you departed, they ultimately have to leave. So is that right? Yes, they ultimately have to leave. And uh, they had no choice of staying in Afghanistan because I... I was also like once, you know, as I mentioned the story before about my brother, when when he got chased after that, I after when they told me the story, so I told them, okay, that it's it's risky for those young boys or yeah, my young younger brothers to stay there. Mm. And at that time, my my brother, the one who got chased, he was about seventeen something, yeah, seventeen, eighteen. Mm-hmm. So I said, okay, because he's young enough in a manner that he can leave the country. I had no other choice of, of, you know, sending him somewhere else. And also I couldn't afford to send my whole family to other countries. So I told them that, okay, just send him to the, Dubai was the best choice or UAE was the best choice at that time mm-hmm. for, because it was easier to get a visa for him and uh, he could stay safer there. Mm-hmm. So I sent him there. And after and then after that incident, my parents never lived in, in their own home. They always kept, you know, moving from one place to another. Like mm-hmm. stay in in a few stay for a few weeks on my or uh, or uh, days in one family trusted family or relative uh, place, and then few few weeks or months in a you know another family or relative place. And then eventually I was like, okay, this, this is not working. So me and my younger brother, who is in Australia, we came to a decision that, okay, yeah, because Australia don't have anything for the, anything for, uh, for our parents or extended family. So this is the only option we can send and we can do. So we told them you, you guys can, should go to India. Mm-hmm. It, it's a bit safer for you guys. And at least, you know, you'll be safer, we'll be, we'll be like relieved that, okay, you are a bit safe right now. But of course, that also come with the sacrifices that, you know, currently, you know, my mother, <laughs> me and my brother, we are here, you know, married, our kids and everyone is here. Most of the family is here right now. There's only two siblings, three, one, one brother and two sisters are there. Always talk, always miss emotionally, She's like, uh, she's not very stable right now. Every time we talk, she cries. And mm-hmm. okay, I miss you guys because, you know, her, her all grandchildren or grandkids are away from her. Mm-hmm. And it is heartbreaking sometimes, you know, when you, when your parents talk to you and every, sometimes you, know, you can't do video calls with them because they feel like, okay, they may cry and they may become very emotional. Mm-hmm. 
and try to distract them. But uh, yeah, that's luckily I could yeah I could take them out. But my wife's side family, I couldn't take them out because I didn't have much financially. I have a work enough that I can feed my you know family and kids here, mm. and just enough that they can live their lives in uh in india look you know pay the rent and you know just the grocery money that's it and uh but the family back in Af- my wife's family back in afghanistan they are still at risk and uh and just um about a few weeks ago i lost my 16 17 years old um a brother-in-law who was who was just a young boy graduated from school, selected for engineering, civil engineering. He was he was ready to go to on on a scholarship to Turkey actually to so he can study for do his studies in Turkey. But uh, we lost him because of the, the Taliban. He got attacked by Taliban in Kuntus. Hmm. Yeah, no, and then, uh, and since then, yeah, I have to, I have to distract my wife in a way that she doesn't think much about him. But mm-hmm. of course, you have social media, you have friends, you have relatives who still, you know, can't forget that innocent boy. Yeah, and that's your that's your and, wife's younger brother who who's who's yeah, as you said, sixteen years old. And, and you said it was only that was yeah. only recently, so that was in this uh, in this uh, recent uh, takeover. Yeah, this uh, yeah. yeah, this recent takeover I, that that happened, I think, in um, about uh, in mid July somewhere. Mm-hmm. So not even uh, yeah, about a month or something actually yeah. And uh, after losing him, I have only two brother-in-laws, and mm-hmm. their parents, their parents were shattered actually. Their parents are can't, can't you know keep him, yeah, keep thinking about them. And I told them I insisted after begging and insisting so much, like please you know go somewhere safer. I mean safer right now. Afghanistan is not safer at all right now so the best option was to come to kabul and they came to kabul two days before taliban take over so and now they're under taliban Hmm. control and uh they're just stuck in uh at home actually like every day i talk to them tell them please don't go out don't go out because i don't trust this these people no matter how, how they what they say you're free to go. You don't have to worry this and that. I still don't trust them. And mm. this, so my how my parents, my siblings, emotionally, they're not stable in India. And physically and emotionally, I would say my 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 parents in law or my brother in laws, you know, they're not safe in Afghanistan. So yeah, it's it keeps yeah. It's hard sometimes. Yeah. And I think now we, I mean, uh, currently Australia is trying to desperately get as many interpreters out as possible. And, of course, we know that that's uh, not going as smoothly as we'd like it to. Um, and far too many are falling through the cracks and getting rejections 
um, for various reasons, uh, rejections of visa. What is what? How did the how are they all feeling at the moment? I mean, you said you're in a number of uh, groups, WhatsApp and Facebook groups. What is the general sentiment amongst those who are waiting for news? They're eagerly waiting for the news. They're they're in a fear, as I mentioned before. They're in the same fear that one day, I'm not sure how long this whole uh, evacuation will go on for. You know, Americans are there in the airport. That's why they're like freely, not freely, but somehow can go to the airport and say that I'm in a risk. Please take me with you. Take me, you know, out of there. Australia doesn't have any any fixed um, plan for uh, like, you know, that those interpreters, those, those interpreters who are in the WhatsApp group right now, they had every day from last I've been following those boys or, you know, seeing their, because I can't, I don't, I don't have anything to tell them. So I just, you know, read their words, say, you know, hear their uh, voice messages that, you know, every day they go to the airport and stand there with their, with their letters, with their certifications, with their recommendations that, you know, we need help. And of course, they're using their emails, try to tell the Australian government that we are in trouble. But of course, there's, there are some rules, there are some, some process or procedures they have to follow. So still they're waiting for it. There is a I think there's only one or two evacuation flights were happened, which majority of them were uh, Afghans or Afghan citizens, Australian citizens or those permanent residents. Mm. Very few were the one who were, who I'm not sure how many, I haven't heard anything from those interpreters who if someone, uh, no one said that, you know, okay, I've got an approval from the Australian defense or Australian immigration, and I've been called to come to the airport. No no interpreter in that group have said anything from last uh, three months, I would say. Mm. The one, the, the, the WhatsApp group, which I've, yeah, following, yeah. So they're in trouble, they're in shock right now. And mm. they're not sure how long they will be staying, how, how long they'll be alive. Because once I'm, I'm kind of in a, in a I'm, I'm not very, I'm not a politician. I'm not a, I'm not something that I can predict properly. But I'm, I'm predicting in a way that once the, all these evacuation uh, soldiers or uh, the one who are Americans, you know, who's having security, right? Once they leave, then yeah, there's no future for those people, and you never know what will happen to them and to their families and their to their relatives. Yeah, mm. because yeah, Taliban never never leaves people when they want to take revenge. So. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Eshan, I'm conscious of your time, and and I, I, I would just like to finish up on uh, the positive note that has been your story. I mean, and this is something that I I also want to stress. Um, now you 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 came to Australia as a refugee. Uh, I myself was a refugee, as many of my listeners will know. I was I fled the Bosnian War. I uh, lived in Germany for three and a half years before then migrating to Australia. Um, one of the things that strikes me 
or, or that's one of the things that we don't necessarily discuss often enough is the lives of those lives of those refugees who then come to Australia. More often than not, they end up being very productive members of the Australian society, and I think you are no exception. You've been working. Maybe, maybe tell us a little bit about your life since coming to Australia uh, and what you're up to now. Um, yeah, my life actually, when I came to Australia, pretty much, you know, from the first day, I was trying to be productive, to be honest, you know, start to find some work and, you know, try to, you know, do something better. And um, I tried to study, but, you know, I had few uh, family trouble that I couldn't focus properly. So I had to leave the studies and then I started working uh in the various jobs actually all those retails all those uh the cleaning i would say i did those kind of the jobs and currently i'm 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 uh, i'm i'm studying part time i'm um, i'm also an uber driver i would say yeah i'm an uber driver i'm i'm also working on one of those essential uh currently in this covid situation working in one of the one uh, service stations so yeah, we, that is busy enough for a refugee uh, who is trying to be productive to this community actually. And I try with my studies. I'm I'm currently studying Bachelor of IT. I'm mm-hmm. trying to you know once I finish this, and uh, I try to make it work for the or serve for the community here because. Australia is my home now, mm-hmm. and I want to be as productive as I can to serve people here. Mm. I can certainly empathize with that. And, and I think that's a, that's probably a message that I think is important for people to realize. Those who haven't lived through things that you have, the second chance of life that Australia does give people like yourself, people like myself, uh, I think it's, yeah. it, it's, it's a debt we carry, um, you know, for our yeah. whole lives. And, and, and we, at least most of the people that I know try to do our best to serve the community that has welcomed us with open arms. Um, Eshan, I think we'll finish on that note. I really do appreciate your time. I think the message you've given and the insights you're giving um, in this conversation are really important for people to understand, firstly, the closeness between interpreters and our troops on the ground and how important and critical your work was. And then secondly, how genuine the threat is that you have lived with and that many like yourself live with today. Um, And I hope that this conversation does open up uh, further discussion on what can be done and what should be done uh, and that more people actually understand the the grave situation interpreters find themselves in at this very moment. So thank you very much for your time, mate. Thank you, Ras. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And I hope uh, my message give uh, some positive energy or positive uh, feedback to the people who are thinking that refugees are just a burden. We are not burdened here. We are a part of the community and we want to do better. And for those interpreters who are waiting and for those families who are waiting, I hope, I hope when uh, those Afghan interpreters and those families are here one day and they will be doing the same as I'm doing here to serve this community and to serve this country, which I'm very thankful to. Well said. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you much. Thank you.
Thanks for joining us for another episode of The Voices of War. You can access all episodes on www.thevoicesofwar.com or by subscribing wherever you get your favorite podcasts. And while you're there, please give us a review as we'd love to hear what you think. If you'd like to recommend a guest for the show, you can reach me on info at thevoicesofwar.com. Thank you.